Hello, I'm Michael Lemmer, and welcome to the Pros and Pros Podcast, a podcast devoted to the exploration of great sports writing. This February, in honor of Black History Month, Pros and Pros will be focusing on stories about the struggle for black equality, along with books by black sports writers. To kick things off, I interviewed Andrew Marinus, the author of the New York Times bestselling book, Strong Inside, which tells the story of Perry Wallace, the first black basketball player in SEC history. Despite breaking boundaries while playing at Vanderbilt in the late 1960s, Wallace's story has sadly been largely forgotten. But it is an important part of both sports and civil rights history that Marinus is thankfully told. Strong Inside is a thoughtful and tremendously well-researched book on racism, sports, and the South that speaks volumes about our current situation as well. Andrew has been a great, careful, and thoughtful caretaker of Wallace's legacy, and it was truly a treat to speak to him about Perry. Without further ado, here's Andrew Marinus. Today I have with me Andrew Marinus, the author of the New York Times bestseller, Strong Inside, Perry Wallace and the Collision of Race and Sports in the South. Andrew, it's great to have you with me today. I've been looking forward to this for a long time, Mike. It's great to be on the show. Thank you. To begin, what led you to want to write a biography of Perry Wallace? Um, for me, really, the, the story goes back to 1989 um, when I was a sophomore uh, at Vanderbilt University and had come to Nashville on a sports writing scholarship to Vandy. I was uh, majoring in history. I was taking an African-American history class. And um, there was an article in a student magazine written by Dave Shinen, uh, who's now with the Washington Post, great sports writer, about this man, Perry Wallace, and the fact that he was coming back to Vanderbilt, to campus for the very first time since he graduated in 1970. So 19 years later, this man, Perry Wallace, who's the, the Jackie Robinson of the SEC, he was the first black basketball player in the SEC, uh, had never been honored by his alma mater in almost two decades. And this was going to be the first time. And so Dave wrote a great story about Perry. And the first paragraph, maybe the first two paragraphs of the article were about uh, setting a scene in Starkville, Mississippi, when Perry played his first game against Mississippi State as a freshman. And that year he had one other black teammate on the Vanderbilt freshman team named Godfrey Dillard. And the scene was so terrible down there. The racism was so raw that Perry and Godfrey were holding hands uh, in the locker room to gain the courage to go out and play the second half of the game. And they felt that they might get shot and killed just playing this basketball game. And so um, that story really captured my attention. I asked my professor, uh, Dr. Jones, if I could write paper about Perry for her black history course and I was afraid she was going to say no that um, basketball or sports or athletes you know it's not an academic enough topic uh, and that I needed to find something quote unquote more serious you know but thankfully she said that's what you're interested in go for it and so um, I called Perry out of the blue he was a professor in Baltimore at that time and wrote a paper about him and then that paper and just having a chance to talk to Perry and learn a little bit about his story as a student always stayed on my mind. And, um, you know, 17 years later in 2006, I decided I wanted to write a biography about Perry. And I emailed him and, and asked if he remembered me in this paper. And he said yes. And I don't know if he was just being nice or not, but um, that gave me the uh, basically the confidence to go ahead to um, to do it. And it wasn't an authorized biography. I didn't need his permission, but I knew I knew I wanted his cooperation. Um, and so that uh, sort of blessing from him was was really important to me. And that started what turned out to be an eight year process of writing the book. But it was definitely a labor of love and something that went back to when I was a teenager and, and wrote that first paper about him. Mm -hmm. And having developed a relationship with him, having spoken to him several times over the course of many years, as you wrote, what was it that struck you most about him throughout your conversations together? Uh, sure. Um, Perry was just a prince of a man. And I say was because he passed away uh, last December, about a little over a year ago. Um, but he, he was a brilliant person. Um, he was a renaissance man. You know, uh, he was uh, valedictorian, for, for example, of his high school. He was an engineering major at Vanderbilt. He earned his law degree from Columbia University. You know, so he was a serious academic. Uh, was one thing that attracted to me about Perry. He wasn't just a typical basketball player. Um, he was one of the smartest people I ever met. Um, he was a musician. Uh, he played the trumpet. He sang opera. Uh, he loved to listen to jazz and Motown and classical music uh, as well. 
um, he was probably the most courageous real life person that I've ever met. Uh, when you think about being 18, 19 year old kid traveling to Starkville, Mississippi and Tuscaloosa, Alabama and Oxford, Mississippi um, in the late sixties, often being the only African-American person in the entire gymnasium playing these basketball games where, like I said, he, he was concerned that he might get shot. People are threatening to kill him after the game. Um, he endured a lot as a pioneer and often pioneer stories are um, maybe whitewashed or, or feel good stories in the way that they're presented. But um, Perry was always very open and honest about the mental and physical toll that it took out of him to be put in this pioneering position. He's also just a brilliant student of um, racism and race relations and taught me so much about those. And I just felt like his story was just incredible. And it would be a crime if he lived and died and, and no one knew it. Mm -hmm. What if there had never been a book about Jackie Robinson? You know, thankfully there's plenty of them and good ones, but I felt this life deserved uh, to be told. And so it was a real privilege to, to write a biography about Perry. Mm -hmm. And was it at all difficult or awkward writing a biography of someone you'd come to know personally? Um, not necessarily. Uh, I felt like the relationship was really helpful for the 99% of the time, mm -hmm. you know, having, built a bit of a relationship and some trust there back like I said as a student and then staying in touch a little bit over the years but then really once I started writing the book we were in contact quite a bit over the course of eight years um, and yes I, I did feel like it was important to maintain a sense of a journalistic detachment you know while I was researching and writing the book and not to be writing a biography of uh, someone that was my best buddy or something you know what if I found out that Perry had done something um, terrible that he didn't want in the book. You know, I couldn't be in a position of like, uh, okay, I won't write that because I like you, Perry, you know? So mm -hmm. I always had to maintain that detachment like a good journalist would. But on the other hand, getting to know him well, getting to know his family um, yielded some great interviews, you know, the, the chance to have eight years. And it took eight years because I was working on this book on the side, you know, at night and weekends outside of a regular job. But spending eight years with someone you just go deeper and deeper and deeper and I was really fortunate not to just have you know one interview with someone about an event but to be able to go back and go back and get more detail and maybe interview someone else that was at a particular event and tell Perry what I had learned and that might remind him of other things you know so uh, as opposed to it being a hindrance to, to sort of admiring this person it really um, I think was a benefit. Mm -hmm. And of course, Perry, going back in his childhood, he grew up in Nashville. How, how did uh, his childhood there shape him? Yeah, so he was growing up in Nashville in the, he was born in 48, but, you know, growing up in Nashville in the 50s and early 60s. And this was a segregated city. Um, he had childhood memories of, of all the things you would imagine, sitting in the back of the bus, going in back doors of establishments downtown, um, not being able to use certain water fountains of his mother having to tell him um, even before he really understood like why he had couldn't sit at that front of, of that bus. Um, he lived across the street from a school, but he couldn't go there because it was a white school. He had to walk through um, certain white neighborhoods to get to his elementary school. And he remembered being taunted and fights breaking out, just walking to school. Um, he uh, also described the strength of what he called the black cocoon that he lived in. Um, based around Jefferson Street, which was the primary commercial center of Black Nashville back then in the strong Black institutions and schools like Pearl High School that he went to, um, people from all walks of life uh, living in the neighborhood or sending their kids to that school. So he felt um, incredible warmth and strength and support within the Black community. And there were just certain times where you had to venture out into white Nashville and then things were very cold and, and different. Um, but uh, his goal as a high school um, star basketball player and valedictorian was to um, get out of this city uh, that he had grown up in, where he had watched the, the, the lunch counter sit-ins um, as a 12-year-old kid. And he, he wanted to get out of this segregated uh, city and, and go up north. And I can tell you why that didn't happen. But uh, um, in terms of his hometown shaping his existence as a young man, it was to the point where he wanted nothing to do with it anymore. And it was kind of ironic that he ended up, uh, or not intentional, 
initially, but he ended up uh, attending college in his hometown. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you mentioned him wanting to to leave initially. Um, and Vanderbilt only had a handful of black students and no black athletes when Wallace decided to attend there. What led Vandy to reach out, and why did Perry accept kind of going back on that initial desire to leave? Right. So from Vanderbilt's perspective, um, it goes back to this 1960 lunch counter sit-ins that I mentioned. So at that time, uh, the the person leading the the students in those nonviolent protests, and these were primarily students from Fisk University and Tennessee State and American Baptist Bible College, people like John Lewis, um, Diane Nash, they... Uh, the person leading them was Reverend James Lawson, who at that time was a divinity school student at Vanderbilt and had been encouraged to come to Nashville by Martin Luther King. And um, after the, the lunch counter protests in February 1960, um, Vanderbilt administration and, and particularly Board of Trust learned that it was one of uh, its own students who was leading these nonviolent protests. And they didn't didn't thank Reverend Lawson for standing up for equality and civil rights. They um, voted to expel him uh, from the university. And Lawson had, they gave him the choice. You can either be expelled or, or you, can, you can quit. And so uh, he, he walked away at that point, or he didn't walk away. They made them expel him. So um, uh, there was tremendous national uh, news coverage of this. And it was embarrassing to Vanderbilt to some degree. It was, you know, how could you, expel this person and so in response to that a new chancellor was brought in a couple years later whose whose personal goal and mission was to really open up the university um, to more black students to even jewish and catholic students to students from other parts of the country besides the south and this was alexander hurd who came from the university of north carolina and um, i interviewed his daughter for the book and she explained that her dad was actually a sports fan and most people just thought of him as this uh, intellectual, but he was a sports fan too. And he understood for better or worse, the role that uh, sports plays in American culture. And so he felt like if he made a move um, in the athletic sphere, that people would notice that the university was changing. And so he called the uh, basketball coach, Roy Skinner into his office and uh, said, Roy, you know, we've integrated the university. Um, You can recruit a black player for your basketball team. And in fact, I would like you to, you know, I want to send that message. Um, Skinner said, okay. And right across town, you had Perry Wallace, who was the valedictorian and starting center on the best high school basketball team in the state of Tennessee. Um, Pearl High won the state championship his sophomore, junior and senior years and went undefeated his senior year. And that was actually the first year that the state tournament was integrated in Tennessee. So his sophomore and junior year, it was, um, the black tournament, but his senior year, when it was everybody in the state, they went undefeated and won the state championship. Perry was being recruited by pretty much every school, uh, big time basketball school in the country. He was really interested in, in the Big Ten schools, and he visited places like Michigan and Northwestern, Purdue, Iowa. Um, he was recruited a little bit by John Wooden at UCLA until Perry realized that their center was uh, Lou Alcindor. <laughs> he probably wouldn't get to play if he signed there. Um, but on a lot of these recruiting trips um, to the schools I mentioned and others, um, he started to kind of see the underside of, of college sports. He, he would be offered cars and cash when he arrived on campus. And Perry was a real straight arrow, and that didn't appeal to him. Um, he was also told a lot of places, if you come to our school, you don't have to go to class or we'll just find the easiest classes for you. You're just here to play basketball. And he would visit these schools and see a lot of the black athletes who were not being uh, afforded an opportunity to get involved really in the full fabric of the school, but we're told, you know, here's when practice is, here's when the games are, and otherwise stay in your dorm uh, or didn't really have social opportunities on campus. And so Perry, his phrase that he used for this, which is very, um, quite Perry, it's so uh, provocative and smart. (laughs) He said he wasn't going to trade one plantation for another. Uh, He wasn't going to leave the deep South where, he wasn't treated as an equal human being just to go to a school where he would be exploited purely as an athlete. And so at that point he began to consider Vanderbilt because he was impressed with the engineering department. He saw the players going to class and also he was very close to his parents and they were much, they were old and he he wanted them to have a chance to see him play. And so in the end, even though he knew it was going to be tough to be a pioneer, he didn't necessarily want 
all that responsibility on his shoulders, he signed with Vanderbilt and, uh, like I said, became the Jackie Robinson of the SEC. And, and entering Vanderbilt with Wallace was another basketball player named Godfrey Dillard. Yes. How, how did their experiences at Vanderbilt sort of overlap and diverge from one another's? Sure. So um, the week after Perry signs his uh, scholarship with Vandy, he's surprised to see in the paper that, that Vanderbilt has signed a second black player. Uh, he didn't know this was coming. And it was Godfrey Dillard from Detroit, um, who, as opposed to Perry sort of being a reluctant pioneer, Godfrey told me the only reason he even considered Vanderbilt was to be, you know, sort of at the, this was his way to be at the, involved in civil rights. Coming from Detroit to the South, he felt like um, this was where the action was. And that, that's why he did it. And he and Perry were very different people. Uh, Godfrey uh, showed up in Nashville with the red Mustang convertible. Um, and that sort of exemplifies the type of guy Godfrey is. He's, he's full of life not afraid really of anything uh was a trash talker on the court had a bigger afro for the time um, was outspoken on campus full of self-confidence um and i would say all in a good way like if you meet godfrey now you'd love him he'd be a instant friend and um, full of life and talkative and everything or perry growing up in the south experiencing southern racism and segregation had a much more cautious um uh approach to things um not that he didn't get things done perry got a lot done and often he was criticized by black friends as for being too conservative uh, and working within systems as opposed to from without uh, them and perry um however would say well look what i'm actually accomplishing i'm not just loud i'm actually getting things done um so anyway he and godfrey had um they were treated differently by uh, the coaching staff uh, at vanderbilt and by the administration here Godfrey was perceived as um, too outspoken, too brash, uh, more than they were ready to handle, that sort of thing, um, where Perry was seen as the good alternative to that, quote unquote, good alternative to that. And so Godfrey starts to realize that, am I really wanted here? Did they just recruit me to be Perry's roommate on the road? That sort of thing. Um, They played a freshman year together, going into their sophomore season, which is the first year on the varsity back then, Godfrey was hurt. And so he misses his entire um, sophomore season. And so Perry makes history as the first black varsity player alone. And while he's injured, Godfrey gets involved with the first black student association on campus, first black newspaper. And this is when he sees that things are really um, turning south in terms of how he's perceived by certain people. He really feels unwanted. And so first day of tryouts or practice the next year, um, where Godfrey has worked his way back from his knee injury, he's demoted to what they call the B team back then. He's basically um, kicked off the varsity. And he feels like this didn't have to do with his athletic ability. He felt like he had recovered from his injury. Perry told me he felt like he had also. And this was retaliation for being uh, involved politically on campus. And so um, Godfrey quits. He's like, the only reason I came here was to – be a part of the action and integrate this league and and play his role in civil rights in that way. And so he moves back to Michigan, uh, drops out of Vanderbilt. Um, A few weeks later, there's an article in the Vanderbilt student newspaper talking about, uh, you know, why, where is Godfrey Dillard? What happened to him? And the the writer takes Godfrey's uh, or the coach's side of the story and says, Oh, he hadn't really worked out from his injury yet. Uh, Godfrey hears this. He's really disturbed by this. He thinks that's not the truth at all uh, and drives back to Nashville and beats up the student reporter who wrote that article, uh, which is um, still a point of contention between Godfrey and and the the journalist. Uh, Godfrey says he took out his frustrations on this poor Henry Henry Hex, but he's never really apologized to Henry for it. But um, Perry, who was being friends with Godfrey and Henry, said he didn't think he should have... taking it out on him physically, but you can understand the frustration that was involved from, from Godfrey's standpoint, where he's dismissed for the team for what he felt were reasons related, uh, not to basketball, but to, um, to race and politics. And so uh, Godfrey's gone at that point. Perry has to um, be a pioneer all by himself and uh, ends up sort of having um, a rude uh, ending to his story at Vanderbilt as well, but it's after completing the whole four-year uh, experiment of, of desegregating this team and this school and this league. Mm-hmm. 
And and what was Perry's relationship with his teammates and coaches like? Um, Perry always went to great lengths to say that his teammates and coaches were um, were good guys and did the best they could, but um, and were not uh, overtly hostile to him. You know, when Jackie Robinson came to the Dodgers, there were players that circulated a petition that said they didn't want to play with him. Um, nobody did anything like that, but but I, you got the sense that nobody necessarily. Um, had uh, empathy for Perry in terms of um, putting themselves in his shoes and then acting in a way to make things easier for him. Um, Coach Skinner said that he felt like the best thing he could do was to treat Perry like anyone else. And that meant not talking to the team about, you know, this is going to be tough when we go down to Mississippi or even having conversations about how things were going, which he wasn't having with his other players either. He was a pretty um, quiet guy. Um, but that's not acknowledging that things were very different for Perry. There weren't other players on the team who were being threatened uh, to be um, lynched after the ball game. You know, um, there weren't thousands of people yelling the N word and anybody else on the team. So mm-hmm. um, Perry felt uh, pretty alone in this journey. Uh, and his, like I said, there was not outward hostility, but there was a certain lack of empathy and um action you know i don't know if it's a true story or not but there's the apocryphal uh, i think story of Wee reese putting his arm around jackie robinson when they were in cincinnati or st louis and and jackie was facing a lot of taunts and Wee reese basically saying this is our guy we've got his back you know and that nothing like that ever happened for perry nobody ever really showed the the fans in a hostile situation that they they had perry's back mm-hmm. and what was life like off the court for him as a student um, Perry would say that that was actually the most difficult part. Um, he had this saying that people can treat each other in any one of three ways. You can be treated well by other people. You can be treated poorly by other people, or you cannot be treated at all. And often people think of the second way that Perry was treated, being treated poorly, you know, at these road games. But, but he would say that the most difficult part of his experience was the third way of not being treated at all. And that was on his own campus. Uh, talked to him and other other handful of black students at Vanderbilt at the time, and they would talk about uh, feeling invisible, um, showing up to class and nobody sitting in the same row with them or even the row behind them. Um, it was a sense of isolation that sometimes was a feeling of invisibility, and sometimes it was a feeling of complete visibility, like all eyes are on me right now. Uh, if there was a history class and the discussion turned to slavery there was sort of an uncomfortable moment where it was like uh, you had to represent all black people in your answer to this question um they would have dances on campus and it was administration fretting about would there be uh, black students dancing with white students Uh, it was an uncomfortable period at vanderbilt at that time and perry was a leader and a pioneer in the classroom just like he was on the court he was an engineer which was probably the most conservative part of uh, the university at that time. Engineering students had actually voted against integrating the university in a campus poll a couple of years before that. Um, there were professors that didn't think Perry would be able to do the work, all the sorts of um, institutional um, and day-to-day racism that you might expect at a Southern school in the 1960s. And so that was not a source, a place of refuge for Perry. It was just as difficult uh, in the classroom and on campus as it was on the basketball court. Mm-hmm. And throughout his time at Vanderbilt, Wallace seemed uh, to feel a fundamental ambivalence about his place there and his role as pioneer that he had taken on. Uh, could you say a little bit about that ambivalence? Um, yes. Uh, and even the best way maybe I can answer it is in the years that followed, Perry would often be asked, you know, you must be glad that you did it and, or would you do it all over again? And people want him to say yes. You know, I think that's the, the answer that people want to hear is, yes, I would do it all over again. It was the right thing to do. I'm proud that I did it. Of course, I would want to make this type of history. But Perry's honest answer was no. He wouldn't do it all over again because only he knew what it took out of the 18, 19-year-old kid to be put in that situation um, physically and mentally. And um, maintaining his mental health um, was very important to Perry. And that was a daily struggle. Um, and you know the first African-American player at Auburn uh, Henry Harris committed suicide um, had a really devastating effect on a lot of 
pioneers and you see a lot of pioneers who, who die young and Perry died young at 69. Um, this was not an easy um, experience. And I think like, again, a lot, a lot of people like to point to these pioneering um, people and events as, as um, important feel good moments, but there weren't a lot of feel good moments at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think Perry recognized that from the very beginning, um, the stress that it was causing him, the stress that it was causing his parents, his mom had cancer at the time. She'd be laying in a hospital bed, listening to her son's games in Mississippi, hearing what the fans were yelling at her son. Something that was, um, a mental strain on Perry from the very beginning. And I think that's why there was the ambivalence. And in the end, he was proud that he did it. Um, he felt integration was a good thing and that uh, it gave him a certain stature. He understood the moral authority that gave him in later years to have had this experience and to be given an opportunity to talk about it. He was a professor, so he was a teacher at heart. He felt like his experience was worth it if people could learn from it. Um, But in other ways, you know, it was kind of, it was on his back and he he understood what that meant. Mm -hmm. And, and how did Wallace's time at Vanderbilt intersect with the wider civil rights movement? And how was he personally influenced by it? Yeah, it was an important part of what I thought was um, necessary to do with Strong Inside was to put his story into the context of the larger civil rights movement. So I mentioned uh, when he was 12, he, he literally watched the lunch counter sit-ins with his own eyes in downtown Nashville. Uh, his Pearl, uh, high school, Pearl High School, would routinely have people like Ozzie Davis and Harry Belafonte and other um, entertainment and civil rights figures when they came through Nashville they would come talk to the students there so he had exposure to those types of people as a high school student uh, when he was at Vanderbilt uh, Martin Luther King and Stokely Carmichael Fannie Lou Hamer Robert F Kennedy all came to campus and he had a chance to meet these people and talk to them and he talked about uh, being so impressed with Fannie Lou Hamer that even though he called her this short little woman and here he is six foot five he was stepping back in awe of her, you know, and <laughs> with the profound influence that had on him. Um, he was an engineering major, but he went to law school and he said that he felt like he needed to, to make a difference in society. And the way he was going to try to do that was through the law. And that's why he didn't sort of stay in engineering and math and science. But he worked for Ron Brown at the Urban League for a year after he graduated. Uh, he had an internship um, with Bayard Rustin, um, one of the great civil rights leaders. Um, And so Perry used to talk about the concept of uh, many mentors slash many mentors, um, M-A-N-Y and M-I-N-I. And so he was always looking for, to learn from, um, from people, even if it was in a sort of mini (laughs) situation, whether he spent a lot of time with them or just had a chance to meet them once. He was always asking questions, always learning. Um, Another thing to mention is that while he was in school is when, when MLK was assassinated and just a few hours from Nashville and he saw pictures of the Lorraine Hotel where King was killed and he remembered staying at that hotel on the same floor when he played high school basketball at Pearl and that was the place where the black teams would stay when they went to Memphis to play high school basketball games. And so um, his story is not separate and apart from civil rights movement, really a part of it and, and not in any uh, stretch of the sense. I mean, he was seeing things meeting people uh, it was it was all one and the same mm-hmm. you mentioned that after graduation he went on to law school and to pursue a career in law can you say a little more about why he chose that path yes um i think perry felt like he wanted to continue to make a difference in the world and in in ways that were more important than just through basketball um he chose columbia in part because he really admired paul robeson um, who had gone to Columbia, who had also been a pioneer, who had also um, been called uh, uh, ungrateful or unpatriotic. Perry, after his last game as a student athlete at Vandy, gave an interview to the local newspaper where he told the truth about how difficult his experience had been. And he was basically run out of town for that interview. Um, and so Perry went into a, a career as a first for a, as an attorney for the Justice Department. Um, and he was very proud of that, that here he had grown up in this country and in this specifically this city of Nashville, which was segregated. And he was told all the things that he could not do and told that he wasn't valued as a person. He wasn't a real American. And then here he was in walking into a courtroom saying to the judge, my name is Perry Wallace and I represent the United States of America in this case. You know, and that was that was profound to Perry. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And after that, he became a professor of law at American University Law School. And he um, was still um, working on behalf of, of justice, often environmental racism. Um, but he felt like uh, he wanted to continue to dispel stereotypes as well. So here you had this six foot five African-American man as a professor at American University Law School walk into his office. Um, there would not be a single trophy or a picture of him playing basketball or no framed jerseys in there or anything. He, a lot of people didn't know that he had this uh, important history in the basketball world. He wanted to be taken seriously as a professor uh, and, and judged on his own merits as a, as a, a lawyer and as a professor. And he, he was very proud of that as well. Mm -hmm. And after his graduation, several decades passed before he and the school developed any sort of relationship. Mm -hmm. What was it that took so long for that reproachment to happen and what led it to finally occur? Okay, well, that, that Tennessean article um, where he basically refused to shut up and dribble and told the truth about his experience is what really created this distance that lasted for so long. There was a perception among uh, certain white people in Nashville and administrators at the school that Perry was angry and that he didn't want anything to do with the school. If you go back and read the article, that's not the case. He was just telling the truth about his experience. He said to me that he felt like he had a moral obligation to tell the truth and that was the responsibility of a pioneer is to talk about the experience so that not only could future um, African-American students uh, learn from it but so that the university could learn from it you know that he needed to talk about what what life was really like for him and so he wasn't angry um, finally what ended up really happening is um, new people <laughs> started showing up at Vanderbilt and one of them was C.M. Newton who was the basketball coach at Vanderbilt in the 1980s. He had previously integrated the team as coach at Transylvania in Kentucky. Uh, he had been the coach at University of Alabama and, and desegregated their athletics there before Bear Bryant did on the football team. CM Newton had uh, black players on the Alabama basketball team and actually had the first all black starting lineup in SEC basketball history, won three straight SEC championships at Alabama. He comes to Vanderbilt and had admired Perry from a distance while he had been at Alabama and was surprised that there was no relationship between the school and Perry. And he, he felt that wasn't right. And so he was the one that invited Perry back for the first time to speak at a booster club function. And that just happened to be when I was a student. That's how I heard about Perry. Um, after that, it was David Williams, who was the athletic director at Vanderbilt up until just a couple weeks ago. Um, African-American, the first black AD in, in the SEC. And he was approached by some students uh, who wanted to honor Perry in some way. And so they retired Perry's jersey. David learned more about Perry's story um, when they started an athletic hall of fame on campus. David made sure Perry was part of the inaugural class there. He, when, I, when my book, Strong Inside, came out, David really pushed for Vanderbilt students to read it. They have a program where all incoming freshmen read the same book. And all the students read Strong Inside for two straight years. Um, Chancellor Zeppos at Vanderbilt now would um, invite Perry back to campus and call him the most significant alum the school has ever had. Uh, there's now two scholarships named after Perry at Vandy. Things eventually did change for the better in significant ways, and Perry felt like it was real. He had this phrase that um, reconciliation without the truth is just acting. And he said a lot of times institutions want to have these uh, photo ops with maybe their pioneers or with to express diversity, but um, that it's, it's just a for show because they haven't really dealt with the truth of the matter. He felt like times had changed. People had studied his history, um, understood he had always just been telling the truth. And so that when there was this reconciliation with Vanderbilt decades later, he felt like it was real and it wasn't just, just for show. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned earlier that this book took you eight years to research and write. Um, what was the process of uh, researching like? Uh, I really enjoyed it. I, I, that's one of my favorite parts of doing a book project is the research. So I tried to interview as many people as I could who knew Perry um, uh, in high school or were his teammates or classmates at Vanderbilt, interviewed his family members uh, several times, um, journalists that covered the teams, uh, posing the coaches or players in certain instances. Um, so there are about 100 interviews I did for the book. Um, I also spent a lot of time going to different libraries and archives, uh, not just in Nashville, but in other SEC cities. Um, I think I read probably 30 or 40 books about 
civil rights or Nashville or Vanderbilt or college basketball at that era. Um, just to, uh, I felt like it was important to be taken seriously uh, on two um, distinct fronts. You know, I, I wanted people who were knowledgeable about civil rights history to feel like I knew what I was talking about there. And I wanted sports fans um, to feel like they were reading a book written by someone that knows basketball too. <laughs> I think in either case, it would show through pretty easily. Um, sports fans are so passionate and knowledgeable and historians um, are too, that if I, if I didn't do the real work that, that I would not be taken seriously. And I, I wanted to be taken seriously on both fronts. And so that required a lot of time, but um, I was working for a public relations firm in Nashville at the time. Um, and so my free time to work on the book was limited. Then I got married and had two kids in the middle of it also. So um, part of the reason why it took eight years, but I, I'm actually glad it did because like I said, it gave me so many opportunities to go back to Perry uh, over those many years. I also didn't have an agent or a publisher. So um, couldn't find one. Everybody told me uh, this would just be a regional interest book and maybe people in Nashville or the South would be interested. And so they didn't want anything to do with it. And that gave me a little bit of a chip on my shoulder, which um, I was happy to have also. And so uh, finally, after I had pretty much written the entire book, I uh, connected with Vanderbilt University Press, which in retrospect seems obvious that they might be interested <laughs> in this book, but they're more of an academic press. They don't publish too many um, trade books. And so it wasn't a given. Um, but then I wanted to work really hard after the book was published to sell it and to get the word out. I felt like it was a universal story, not a local interest story. And so I was really proud that uh, with the University Press first time book that it made New York Times bestseller list. And I felt happy for me, but also for Perry, because that meant people were hearing about this, this person that they, in most cases, had never heard of before. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this book definitely feels like a project of reclamation to a certain degree. Yes. Um, and um, I'm proud of that, <laughs> you know, and especially since Perry died last year, that um, his place in history needs to, to be known. Um, it's not just a basketball story. Like you said, it's a civil rights story too. Um, there's so much that we can all learn from Perry. It was a real um, shame that it took so long for Vanderbilt to even recognize that. And so I, I do feel like he was able to experience the respect and the understanding and the love, honestly, that he had deserved for a long time before he passed away. Mm -hmm. And why do you think his story had been so forgotten? Um, well, for one thing, no one around Nashville was telling it. Uh, at Vanderbilt, they weren't. When David Williams got here, he said, what do you mean you're not, you should be waving flags and banners that we had Reverend Lawson and Perry Wallace on this campus. Like, why are you hiding from it, <laughs> you know? Um, so he didn't have a, the machine or a publicity machine of a big institution telling this story for so long. Um, he also had Perry who wanted to get on with the rest of his life and, you know, goes to law school and is busy as a justice department attorney and busy as a professor. And he wasn't an egomaniac he, or even not to be pejorative about it. He wasn't someone that was always uh, telling his story. Um, it just wasn't the type of guy he was. Um, and so you had Vanderbilt not telling it. You had Perry not really telling it. I think that all fed into it. Um, I don't know exactly why there were there was a lot of sports writers who wrote about Perry when he was was at Vandy who, who knew his story and, and could have chosen to do it but they, they just didn't mm -hmm. and we we've sort of touched on Perry's ambivalence and the immediate aftermath of his time at Vanderbilt but you spoke to him closer to the end of his life and with the benefit of hindsight how did he come to view his time at Vanderbilt and his role in the civil rights struggle yeah um I still think his honest answer, would he do it all over again, was no. But uh, I had a really poignant moment with him on his deathbed in this hospice room in Maryland about two weeks before he died. I was up there with David Williams, the athletic director, and Candace Lee, the deputy athletic director, both of whom are African-American, which you could say um, traces back to Perry coming to Vanderbilt. You know, when he was here, there mm -hmm. were no black um, staff members in the athletics at all. And now the top two people um, were at that point. And um, Perry looked at all three of us and he said that he loved Vanderbilt and that he wanted his uh, memorial service to be held on campus. Um, and so, you know, that meant a, said a lot and meant a lot. Um, he also um, looked at Candace 
first, but then all three of us and said that if we really uh, wanted to honor him in the future, what we could do is to create opportunities for women. And which was uh, surprising, but profound and important and good thing for Perry to say. And I think um, he was always thinking about other people. Um, in this instance, I think he was thinking about his mom who was only able to go to school through uh, eighth grade uh, because of racism in rural Tennessee where she would grew up and was a brilliant person but never had many opportunities in life and he didn't want to see anybody else go through that but um, relating that back to his experience about Vanderbilt whenever he would be invited back to campus in those later years he always would turn the spotlight let it reflect off of him and onto other people mm -hmm. and he understood that there was power that came with his position with his history there and that he wanted to use that in positive ways to help other people not just to soak it all in for himself and so he was able to do that for a lot of people associated with Vanderbilt and in other parts of the country and other walks of life and so he did recognize that even though he had this ambivalence about whether he really would do it all over again that there was great opportunity that came with it and so he didn't minimize that he just understood that he could have been killed or he could have um, been psychologically damaged by this experience and, and that's why he would say he might not do it again but in the end, he he was he was really proud that that he had done it. Mm -hmm. And I know for me, reading this book, the ambivalence and sort of that inner struggle was part of what made Perry's story so compelling to me, because there's so many stories that um, try to put kind of a tidy bow on mm -hmm. integration and saying, "Well, they got in, everything's okay now." And I think that inner struggle shows a lot more complexity that has a lot more resonance for readers today than a, a tidier narrative would. Mm -hmm. I hope so. Yeah, uh, that was important to me to try to get that across in the book. I think it was very important to Perry also. And when I'd sit down in the interviews with him, you know, he made that pretty clear from the beginning. Uh, this wasn't just your typical story. I'm really happy it wasn't. And, you know, I created a middle school version of this book. Uh, so kids are learning Perry's story now. And I think that's important for them to learn, too, that this is a human being who um, had doubts and fears. And, and, uh, and Perry's a pretty darn good guy. It's hard to say he wasn't perfect, but he, he wasn't perfect either. Um, but I think that it's important, especially for kids when they're reading about, um, you know, heroes, that they understand that they also had to summon courage and that they, they weren't super um, Superman, you know. And so then in that way, they can become a great uh, human being too, just like Perry. They don't have to say, well, I know I'm not perfect, so I can't do it. You know, and I think um, the message is important for adults and for, and for kids. Mm -hmm. And it's been nearly five decades now since his time at Vanderbilt, and we still live in a country where racism runs rampant in a variety of ways. But what do you believe that his story tells us today that can inform our, our current struggle against injustice? Right. Um, I think about that a lot and in some ways um, it's heartbreaking that significant fingers like Perry and other civil rights leaders that did put their lives on the line 50 years ago and you sometimes are tempted to say and, and nothing's changed you know um, but that I think uh, diminishes um, what these people did you know mm -hmm. um, if we want to say that nothing's changed things have changed a lot and we owe a lot to these figures that were willing to um, sacrifice basically themselves for the benefit of the rest of us. Um, I think the lessons that, that Perry shares uh, are, are many um, and they can be interpreted differently by different people. So I'm trying to get my thoughts together to, <laughs> to share them what I feel are the most important, but one of them um, is it inspires us to stand up and actually um, act and speak on behalf of what matters to us and also to support and be an ally to other people who are, who are putting themselves out there. So when I speak to kids, I try to get the point across that the, what I think is the most important lesson for them is to be an upstander rather than a bystander. Mm -hmm. And um, Perry was surrounded by a lot of bystanders, especially when he was at Vanderbilt. Um, and I'm talking about white bystanders here. And these were the people that would say, um, well, I wasn't the one calling Perry the N-word. And I wasn't the one threatening to kill him at a basketball game. And I didn't slam the door in his face. I didn't do anything. And, and then they'd catch themselves and realize they just told me they didn't do anything. <laughs> you know, where they, 
they had this classmate or this teammate that they, they should have and could have and maybe did see was being treated unfairly and yet they didn't do anything to support him and to step up for him, you know? Um, and in a lot of cases they lived with 40 years of regret that they hadn't done that. And so I think that's one important lesson for all of us, but especially young people now, um, is when they rec to be on alert for these situations and to step up and help people who are fighting for what's right and are being treated unfairly. Um, I think there's certain lessons in, um, I mentioned, alluded to this a little bit earlier, but Perry was perceived by a lot of uh, radicals in the 60s as being too conservative. Um, and why did he even go to Vanderbilt in the first place? You know, to this white institution where he was going to be used? Um, or why did he go meet with the chancellor and, and, and be a part of this uh, administration? You know, um, where Perry would point out that he was actually getting things done. Um, integrating the league was a courageous and bold um, uh, thing to do, a dangerous thing to do, you know, going and speaking the truth to this room of white administrators, all in their 50s and 60s, um, may have been seen as sort of selling out to some people, but that was a really courageous thing to do also, you know, and so uh, I think um, there's a lesson in that there are different approaches to things that all may be effective um, and to kind of be allies for each other regarding if we're doing the right thing, there might be different approaches to it, but that um, to, to be mindful that there are different approaches that might work. Um, I think his story is a, a lesson that there, um, let's say a Colin Kaepernick situation right now, and there's certainly echoes to Kaepernick in both Perry and Godfrey Dillard, um, or even uh, LeBron and other athletes who are willing to speak up on social issues and take such heat from from um, mostly white people in our culture who admire these athletes on the field but don't want to hear them off the field. Um, you saw the exact same thing happening with Perry and Godfrey. But Godfrey's kicked off the team for it. Perry's much more uh, circumspect while he's still playing, but then speaks the truth when he's done um, playing and is kicked out of or is run out of Nashville. Um, and so I think we can hopefully learn from these stories and it's so obvious in retrospect that Perry was just telling the truth so why can't we admit that now <laughs> when these athletes are, are telling the truth um we're, we're repeating history again in, in so many ways and, and I, that's why um when the book came out and in the years since it's come out it's kind of sad that it's still so relevant but um but it is his, his story is is playing out over and over again mm -hmm. And, and you also mentioned that you've adapted Strong Inside for younger middle school readers. What yeah. was the process of bridging and adapting your book like? And what have the responses you've gotten from younger readers been like? Uh, it was a fun process. Actually, I didn't think it was going to be because I had to take a 190,000-word book and turn it into a 40,000-word book. Um, so imagine cutting 150,000 words. Out of something, <laughs> but um, it actually was... Uh, because usually like if I'm, I've written something and I have someone suggest an edit to a sentence I might bristle at it you know but knowing that so much had to be edited um, I wasn't uh, emotionally I couldn't be emotionally attached to any single sentence or or line so um, I worked closely with an editor at Philomel which is a part of Penguin Young Readers and um, I was really happy they said we're not going to dumb down the story we're not going to whitewash the story we just have to stick closer to Perry and stick closer to the real action so side characters are either eliminated or really reduced um, there's less build up to certain scenes and you're, you're right in the middle of the locker room in Mississippi State for example at the beginning of the book um, so it's a condensed version but it's still a powerful version um, and I've been really pleased with the response I've been to schools in 24 different states now so again it's not just a southern book i've been to schools in um, oakland and manhattan and austin texas and uh, middle of a dairy field in wisconsin and so <laughs> kids um, all over the country are um, responding to the story i think they see it as a story of a young person not much older than themselves who's um, facing challenges on specifically racism um, a lot of the kids are interested in the basketball aspect of it too uh, and i don't that's great. You know, I'd like to trick them with a basketball cover and then get into a story about civil rights. That's fine with me. Mm -hmm. um, and I've had kids um, who have written some really um, 
poignant essays about bullying that they've experienced for being gay or for being African-American or from being from another country and that they are relating to Perry's story. Um, some schools prepared video messages from students that I was able to share with Perry as he was dying and they meant a lot to him as well. Um, and so this experience of dealing with kids has really um, changed the course of my writing career. Also, the next book that I uh, have finished writing comes out in November is written straight for middle school kids. So I didn't do an adult edition and then adapt it. I'm, my goal now is to write um, narrative nonfiction, sports and history related stories um, for young readers. Uh, I think there's a, they're the kind of books I would have liked to have read in middle school. And, uh, and so that's what I want to do is write these stories and have a chance to tell these stories to, um, to, to students that are sports related, but have a more significant social message too. Mm-hmm. And so what do you say a little bit more about your new project then? Yes. So the book is called Games of Deception, the true story of the first U.S. Olympic basketball team at the 1936 Olympics in Hitler's Germany. So um, uh, 36 was the first time basketball was in the Olympics. And there's been a lot written about those games with Jesse Owens and Boys in the Boat. Um, but I hadn't realized until I learned it a little over a year ago, that's where basketball made its debut. And James Naismith was there to see his invention become an Olympic sport. Uh, there was one Jewish member of the U.S. Olympic basketball team who had reservations about whether he would go uh, to Berlin to participate, but in the end felt like the best thing he could do um, for humanity was to prove that he could succeed, you know? Um, and so the book is about fascism and racism and basketball and the early days of the Nazi regime, um, about the uh, boycott effort that narrowly failed in the U.S. Um, and uh, I, I loved writing it. I can't wait for it to come out. It'll be out um, in early November. And um, again, it sort of uses basketball as a way to talk about important history. Awesome. Sounds great. Thanks. And, and to wrap up, I would like to, to close by asking a few questions I'd like to ask every guest. Yes. Uh, to begin, what are you currently reading at the moment? Um, right now I'm reading books that relate to my what will be my third book, um, uh, which will be about Glenn Burke, who is the first outwardly uh, gay Major League Baseball player, uh, played for the Dodgers and the A's. So I'm reading um, books about uh, disco, because <laughs> that sort of figures <laughs> into that time period, about um, the early days of AIDS. Uh, I just read a book called Dodgerland also about uh, the Dodgers of that era. So a mix of uh, sort of 1970s pop culture and, and AIDS and baseball. Mm-hmm. And if you could recommend any book to everybody listening today besides your own, what would it be? Oh, <laughs> man, so many. Um, well, I know that you're arranging to interview Howard Bryant, the author of uh, The Heritage, uh, which is one I would certainly recommend for people who are interested in this in our podcast today about race and sports uh, Howard's the best it's a great book um, I got to throw in a plug for my dad too <laughs> so <laughs> my dad's written 12 I think 12 books um, and uh, related to sports he's written biographies of Roberto Clemente and Vince Lombardi and the um, Rome Olympics of 1960 so I need to put a plug in for his his sports books too <laughs> you're far from the first <laughs> You're far from the first person to put in a plug for his books and in response to that question too. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I mean, I, I wouldn't be a good son if I didn't do it, but <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, I'm almost, pro- I pretty much only read nonfiction. Um, mm-hmm. I, I know some people love, love fiction, but um, for me, it's, it's narrative nonfiction, almost always related to history and sports. I'm kind of one, one track uh, mind <laughs> as mm. far as the books go that I'm interested in. It's funny. That's actually something I've been trying to remedy in recent years. Uh, one of my reading goals for this year was to read more fiction than nonfiction this year. Okay. Well, so. <laughs> there's this guy that uh, kind of under the radar guy you might be interested in. I think his name is Stephen King. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I read his um, time travel book about the Kennedy assassination. That, that's the last fiction I've read and I, I loved it. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> but I, I definitely need to branch out more. Another author I should mention on the fiction side who's been a real mentor to me in Nashville is Ruta Sapetis. And uh, she writes historical fiction for young adults um, primarily related to uh, refugees and World War II lately, uh, Salt to the Sea, 
Between Shades of Grey are two of her books. And she's the person that really recommended that I turn Strong Inside into a young reader's book. And I'm so thankful that, that she did that. Mm-hmm. And, and what is your earliest sports memory? Earliest sports memory? Um, being scared of a carrot costume mascot at a Brewers game <laughs> in probably 1974. Um, <laughs> um, I also apparently in 72 as a two-year-old would point at the TV and say, Manny Sanguin, Manny Sanguin, um, whenever I saw a catcher. But I don't honestly remember that. Um, <laughs> in about 75, 76, we, we lived in New Jersey and uh, my dad would, we would go to the Phillies games together a lot. So my even though I'm from Wisconsin and the Brewers are by far my favorite team now, my, my first real favorite team was the 75, 76 era Phillies. And Dave Cash, their second baseman, was my favorite player at that time because his 1975 Topps baseball card, he was posing sort of backhanding a uh, ground ball. And I just loved that, that baseball card. I was always hoping that for some reason that uh, my dad was going to bring Dave Cash home with him from work one day and that he would be there at my birthday party or something. (laughs) Um, So those memories are strong. And then a little bit after that, we lived in Washington, D.C. in the early 80s when Patrick Ewing was at Georgetown. We had Georgetown season tickets and I was a huge Hoyas fan. Um, Back then I cried when Villanova beat them in the the championship. Um, I cried a lot with sports. I cried when the (laughs) Brewers lost to the Cardinals in the World Series in 82. so that was sort of my prime sports era was being, you know, 10, 12 years old, being a Brewers fan, being a Georgetown fan. And um, the Packers sucked then, but I've had that. They've made up for that mm-hmm. <laughs> in the years since, for sure. Yeah. And and what's the first thing that you remember writing? Um, again, in about 75, 76, I was writing little baseball previews, um, uh, like you might read in Athlon or Street and Smith or something like predicting how teams were going to do. Um, and then in 83, this isn't the first thing I remember, but it, it stands out. I, I created a little sports magazine called AJ Sports Journal and um, wrote about, uh, again, American League predictions. I think I predict the Brewers are going to win like 120 games or something that year. And an uh, editorial that the Packers are wrong to fire Bart Starr. And um, I actually interviewed John Feinstein. It was the first interview I did. It was like Q&A with Feinstein, who at that point was not really a sports writer. He was um, um, like a Metro reporter at the Washington Post where my dad worked. And I still have that interview I did with him, um, which is pretty remarkable considering what happened with Mm -hmm. with his career. Probably the best-selling sports author of all time. He's the first person that I had a chance to interview. I used to subscribe to crazy things like – What's Brewing was the Brewers magazine back then and Packer Report. Um, So I was always reading, whether it was good or bad writing, like (laughs) these sports newsletters or um, my dad working at the Post. You know, I read the sports section every day growing up, which was probably a huge influence that I didn't even realize. Mm -hmm. And, And finally, if you could give your younger writing self any piece of advice, what would it be? Uh kind of relates to what we're just talking about now is probably to become more well-rounded a little earlier although you know now that I say that when I talk to kids I'll tell them just read you know it doesn't matter what you're interested in just develop the habit of reading and that is so important um on the other hand like in those days I would only read the sports section or I would only read Packer Report and what's brewing and stuff and I think that I could have become a better writer a better thinker um faster if I had broadened my horizons a little earlier I I think I finally got to that when I got to college but as a younger writer um, exposing yourself to different genres and um, authors from different perspectives really is invaluable Um, Mm -hmm. and that was a lesson I didn't learn until a little bit later than I should have (laughs) absolutely Well, Andrew, I want to thank you so much for taking the time out to talk about Strong Inside with me. I highly recommend the book, and I really enjoyed talking with you today. Well, thanks so much, Mike. It was uh, was great to meet you, and I had a chance to be out in the Bay Area, and I admire what you're doing with the podcast, um, and just appreciate that you had me on it. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Pros and Pros podcast. 
Stay tuned for many more exciting guests in the near future. And in the interim, please subscribe and leave a positive review if you've enjoyed the show. You can also follow us on both Twitter and Instagram at Pros and Pros. I'm Michael Wimmer. Happy reading, everyone.